This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Senior Associate of the Americas Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The Mexican but are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. From Tijuana to Paramaribo, with stops in Havana, Washington, and lots of places in between. My guest today is Ambassador Jay Anania, retired U.S. Foreign Service officer, colleague, and friend. Welcome, Jay. Thank you, Richard. So, Jay, this is going to be one of those interviews in which I already know the answers to most of the questions I'm going to ask, a little bit like a prosecutor or you know, a detective. <laughs> uh, we've known each other a while, I think coming up on 20 years, um, overlapping at the embassy in Berlin. Uh, our kids kind of grew up together for a while, so I think our listeners would be very interested in hearing about your career in the Foreign Service, first of all. Um, you had a very long and distinguished career in the Foreign Service. Let's back up before Foreign Service. Uh, talk a little bit about you, and then why did you end up in foreign affairs? All right. Yes, I am one of those semi-rare creatures, a, a native-born Washingtonian. I was born in Washington, D.C. at George Washington University Hospital in Foggy Bottom, a place where I seem to keep coming back to. Uh, my parents had both worked for the federal government. My father was uh, early on a member of the National Security Agency for many years. Uh, he started in the mid-50s. Of course, many of my friends around the area also working for the federal government. I was probably inspired most to join the Foreign Service by my mother, however, who was for some time in the Central Intelligence Agency. And she served overseas at our embassy in Belgrade. I think uh, she was always uh, very disappointed that she wasn't able to continue with her career. And so to some degree, perhaps I was continuing uh, her legacy, you could say, by joining the Foreign Service. So you ended up going to school it was in Kenyon College, right? Yes, in Central Ohio. I studied uh, history. I then went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where I got an MBA. That combination really proved to be great for the Foreign Service. I think a lot of people think of diplomacy as about you know great matters of policy, negotiating treaties, and what have you. But in fact, what you're doing day to day, in many cases, is doing program management. And I was much more on the uh, management side of the house at the State Department throughout my career until my tour as ambassador. And then sort of my inner econ officer came out, you know, all the training that I had had uh, in my uh, academic career. So um, most of our listeners know, or many know, that uh, to get into the Foreign Service, you have to take the Foreign Service exam as a first step. Did you take the Foreign Service exam while you were still at Kenyon, or uh, was this after Chapel Hill? I took it my second year of the business program at Chapel Hill. So I went over to a small school in Raleigh, North Carolina, bleary-eyed, no coffee, managed to pass the test. I got the offer to join the Foreign Service just as I was graduating and leaving, so the timing was perfect, and that saved me from a career in banking, where <laughs> many of my classmates went. I, I remember at least my first tour, at least my first couple of tours, there was not a whole lot of say in where I went. Was that also true when you joined? No, that was definitely true. In fact, um, we were given the opportunity to express preferences, but then we were told where to go. and. Tijuana was not on my list. In fact, the number one place on my list of all places was uh, Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And we had two two positions in Haiti, and I didn't get either one. So, you know, you really got to feel like you're <laughs> off to a bad start. Uh, it turns out Tijuana is a fascinating place. It's changed dramatically since I was there in 1985 and 1986. Uh, in fact, at that time, the sort of out-of-control border that our current president keeps talking about 
it actually was that way back then. It's not that way now, but it certainly was then. And I went out a couple of times with the Border Patrol at night. It was a crazy place. You had a lot of illegal crossings of Mexicans back then. This is pre-NAFTA. NAFTA having been uh, tremendously successful in the sense that it has really opened up Mexico's economy and increased uh, job opportunities in Mexico and eliminated a lot of the reasons why people were flowing north in the first place. Of course, there are other demographic changes in Mexico that, that help explain that. But at that time, you had people streaming across the border. They would assemble in Tijuana. Uh, at, there was a famous place called the soccer field, and people would just sort of hang out in the afternoon. They had vendors who had little mobile taco stands and things. And then as it got dark, people would start going across the border, sometimes paying coyotes, as they were called, to escort them other times, just going on their own. And then the border patrol, which wasn't very well staffed, would just sort of be on the other side waiting for them, and they would kind of arrest as many as they could. But once once they reached capacity for the day, that was it. It was kind of a free-for-all, and everybody else would just stream across the border. And that's, uh, that's amazing to hear that, because this is the mid-'80s, and, of course, the numbers got much, much bigger all through the 90s. I think they peaked uh, 99 or 2000. Southwest border, there were something like 1.6 million apprehensions on the southwest border. I'm guessing a lot of those probably in the Tijuana sector. Yes, right there. San Isidro is the town in California across the border. And that was definitely one of the heaviest points for crossing, both illegal and legal, because the, the San Isidro crossing is truly stupendous. I don't think people who haven't been to these places can hardly imagine, but it was 24 lanes for autos plus a pedestrian crossing, and it's only bigger now. In fact, while I was in Tijuana, the U.S. and Mexico opened a separate crossing in a place called Otay Mesa, which is just a few miles inland. And that became, in the NAFTA days, became a, a huge crossing for uh, all kinds of commercial cargo. Because another thing Mexico was doing was that they were opening up a tax-free zone along the border regions, which still remains, which would allow parts and things to come in from other places tax-free, be assembled uh, into whatever it was they were making. And at the time, they had a lot of electronics businesses there, Sony, Sanyo. Kenworth Trucks had a big division there, Kenmex, and then re-exported. And this was pre-NAFTA. Now with NAFTA, of course, those businesses have expanded greatly throughout the country. We're going to come back to Tijuana and, and border security, at least border security. But let's march through the rest of your career. After Tijuana, uh, what was your next assignment? Uh, next, I went on to Amman, Jordan, which was a fascinating place to be. Very hospitable people there, the Jordanians. Very difficult neighborhood to be in. Uh, somehow they seem to have managed it well over the years. It was a time of great optimism. There was a lot of shuttle diplomacy going on with the hope that the Arab-Israeli conflict could be resolved. We had an excellent Secretary of State, George Shultz, who was constantly flying in and out um, and used uh, Jordan actually as kind of a base for a while, flying to Cairo, flying over to uh, Damascus, Tel Aviv, wherever. Um, unfortunately, that didn't work out, but uh, that was the mission that we were really focused on. Two pretty interesting but quite different first two tours. And then did you come back to Washington after that at State Department? No, or? then it was Havana. And so I back in the, the Western Hemisphere. Yes, and I was the general services officer. This at this point was 88 to 90. Okay. And so my job was basically to maintain the buildings and the cars and take inventory of our office supplies. I also had a bent for computers, so I kind of got involved in that, the very basic computers that we had at the time. And that was a very difficult time for Cuba. I mean, basically been a difficult 50 or 60 years in Cuba, yeah, yeah. but particularly then because the economy was already pretty disastrous when I arrived, but then the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc 
disintegrated. And very quickly, a lot of communist nations' trading system disintegrated. And so the countries that had been supplying Cuba with a lot of critical, critical machinery and supplies went on a COD basis. And because there was no C, no cash, there is basically was then and still is very little in the way of an economy in Cuba, uh, they couldn't obtain these materials. And so, for instance, uh, most of the buses came from Hungary. They had these buses, Icarus buses, and they were these big double long stretch buses. And pretty soon the parts, things would break. These were not reliable buses and um, they couldn't fix them. And often it was the same part that would break. And so you'd just see these buses abandoned on the side of the road. Russia continued to support Fidel Castro by sending oil or arranging for oil to be delivered. So that sort of kept them afloat. But in terms of their industry, such as it was, uh, it was almost a complete and immediate collapse because they were so dependent upon countries like the former East Germany, former Czechoslovakia, and Hungary for a lot of those critical parts. Dollar-wise, probably not that big of a percentage, maybe 10 or 15%, but impact-wise, huge. And so you basically had a good percentage of the already underemployed Cuban population essentially unemployed at that point. I think a lot of people thought, you know, Cuba was on its last leg precisely because the Soviet Union had sort of shut up uh, and gone away. And in fact, when I joined the Foreign Service in 1993, I wanted to go to Havana as my first assignment, thinking Castro's only going to be around another couple of years. <laughs> this is my chance to go. Uh, and of course, that, that wasn't true. All right, let's fast forward a number of other assignments, including Berlin, where we first overlapped in the late 90s or mid to late 90s. Uh, you ended your career as uh, ambassador to Suriname. Suriname, uh, I think it's fair to say, is probably not at the top of the foreign policy agenda uh, for uh, the State Department or the White House. Did that give you more freedom as an ambassador to actually set and make policy in that it's sort of the more traditional role of an ambassador because the ambassador had a lot of delegated authority to kind of make policy? Did you find that to be the case in Suriname, simply knowing that you were the one that was focused on the interests of the United States and the goings on in Suriname, back at the White House, probably not so much? What was your daily life like in Suriname? First of all, for the audience, perhaps say where Suriname is. Right, good, good start. Because uh, <laughs> for many, it's kind of obscure. And in fact, it was funny. I used to meet business people down in Suriname and their business cards, they'd actually have a little map on the back of the card with to an arrow pointing to where they were. <laughs> right. Because a lot of people would say, oh, well, is that near Ghana and Africa or something like that? No, in fact, Suriname can also be the answer to some trivia questions. Before I was formally named uh, or nominated to go there, people would ask me where I was going. And I'd say, well, I'm going to go to a Dutch speaking country that borders France. <laughs> <laughs> because, in fact, uh, French Guiana is a department of France. So it's sort of like uh, Alaska to the U.S. It's an integral part of France, but it's not contiguous with the rest of continental France. And so Suriname is former Dutch Guiana. And then to the west, you have Guiana, which was formerly a, a colony of the British. And to the south, you have Brazil. And Suriname is a fantastically interesting place, probably the most diverse place on earth because of the patterns of immigration. Prior to the creation of the modern kingdom of the Netherlands, they had independent provinces and they would do all sorts of commercial activities. And one of them was creating colonies. And one of them was Suriname. Long ago was an extremely wealthy colony because of the production of sugar. Because they were producing sugar and they needed labor, they enslaved people in Africa and brought them over. And so right from the beginning, they had a lot of Afro-origin people in Suriname. And many of those people escaped 
and went into the interior and founded their own cultures, which remain to this day. So that's fascinating. Then you have a large group of people who remained enslaved and later became, who were freed. And so that's a separate, completely separate ethnic group, despite the similarities racially mm -hmm. and, and from where they originally came from. Then the Dutch tried to replace these enslaved workers. And so they brought in people from other places. They brought people from Java, which is modern day Indonesia. They brought people who they hired through the British from what was then called um, British colonial India, but which is now has broken up into several countries. And those people who call themselves Hindustanis include many people who are Muslims, who come from modern day Pakistan. And they're not just Muslims, but they're Ahmadi Muslims, which is a subgroup among the Muslims. Uh, so, so, so far, you've got Europe, you've got Africa, yes. you've got uh, South Asia, uh, East Asia. And let's not forget the Chinese, Chinese because for okay. a while they brought in Chinese males. Right. Uh, so when you go to Suriname today, you see a lot of people who have Chinese last names who don't appear to be ethnically Asian because immediately, because they had no Chinese women, they were intermarrying with the other group. So it's a fascinating place, very, very nice people. Uh, the most polyglot place I've ever been, almost anyone you would meet would speak m at least three languages. It was amazing. And the, the level of English was, was very surprising to me. I did, because I had some German and I studied some Dutch, I could read the newspapers and things like that, but getting around, it was astonishing to me, even in the jungle sometimes, how you could have conversations in English. So it sounds like what you're describing, Jay, uh, that Suriname, my guess is, feels like, and maybe they feel like, much more closer to the Caribbean in terms of sort of general background, all these influences, than they do to Latin America. Would that be a fair same in terms of their self-identity? It's interesting because it is such a diverse place. First of all, the ties to the Netherlands remain extremely strong. They only became independent in the 1970s. And there was quite an exodus of people because, for better or for worse, Suriname decided when they became independent that they wouldn't allow for dual nationality. And so a lot of people who, up until then, had been Dutch citizens decided, hey, I'm just going to retain my Dutch citizenship. Some of them stayed in Suriname, but many of them, there was a mass exodus. And unfortunately, many of the best educated people left. So they have an odd national identity. They are members of CADICOM. So yes, they do have some connection to the Caribbean, but they were also a member of UNASUR, which is, I guess it's technically still exists, but a moribund organization in South America. Now, to answer your original question, yes, we had a lot of flexibility day to day in what we did. Nobody in Washington was really following us closely. And that was kind of frustrating because there were occasionally things that were fairly important to the U.S., that didn't get a lot of attention. And so part of my job was to actually go to other agencies. Normally as ambassador, you might go somewhere to get a briefing from them on what was going on. But it was the reverse when I would go. I would have to tell them times have changed in Suriname. So, uh, so you left the Foreign Service in 2015? Yes. Uh, shortly thereafter, you effectively became Chief Operating Officer at the OAS, or what was your official title at the OAS? The title is Secretary for Administration and Finance a position which has historically been held by Americans, in large part because the U.S. pays about two-thirds of the budget of the OAS. I continued to work, obviously, to some degree closely with the State Department and the U.S. mission to the OAS because they were the source of a lot of our funds, not only the day-to-day -day operating funds, but also the programmatic funds. So it was very important to the U.S. that they have people that they could confide in who were running the money to make sure that things were not going 
off the rails to make sure that we got clean audit opinions, for instance, which we did. But at that point, you were no longer a U.S. government employee. No, absolutely not. I was an employee of the OAS. And is that one of those positions where the countries are required to vote on it, or were you just simply appointed by the Secretary General? To an American, I guess you could say I was a political appointee. The Secretary General appoints uh, people. It's called positions of trust, posiciones de confianza. Right, right. So the senior staff is appointed by the secretary general. But as I just alluded to, the U.S. typically expects that the position I was in would be filled by an American. So to other countries jockey to fill other positions that they feel are particularly important. It's an interesting process, and it doesn't necessarily lead to a harmonious cabinet. So let's talk about the OAS, a little bit about the history and its current activities. It's kind of, I guess, a UN for the Western Hemisphere, if some people have termed it, but not quite. Um, it started life as a Pan-American organization. Well, actually, it goes way back. It goes back to about 1890. That's right. The Pan-American. Pan-American Union. Right. Yes. And it kind of evolved over time. Originally, it was more the South American countries because, of course, the Caribbean countries were not independent at that time. And the U.S. sort of sponsored it. It was an expression of interest in hemispheric uh, relationships that has endured. But it didn't formally become the Organization of American States until the 40s. I want to say 1948. Part of the post-Cold War architecture in terms of... Yes, and more explicitly at that time, becoming an organization of democratic countries and an organization focused on fostering democracy. And human rights uh, became another one of the pillars of the OAS. So uh, in theory, I think, uh, you know, this was organization that was meant to sort of bind together countries of the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. It's an expression of the United States' interest in the, in the region, sort of a way to keep the United States engaged. Um, in practice, it hasn't always worked out that way, right? I mean, there, there have been some issues with the Organization of American States in terms of its effectiveness, I would say. Part of that is driven by the model of mostly consensus type of organization. Very rarely do you have an out-and-out -out vote at the OAS uh, like you have all the time at the UN. And so effectively, a lot of the smaller countries exercise sort of a veto power. It's not a formal veto power, but they can kind of block a lot of initiatives. Recently, we've seen the OAS take a fairly active role on Venezuela. One, do you agree with my characterization of the, of the OAS in terms of its structural weakness in terms of being able to engage? And then two, what explains the difference now? Why do we see the OAS sort of taking a leadership role in Venezuela when previously on other regional crises, it seems to have sort of sat on the sideline? Well, um, in, in fact, uh, the OAS, I, I would say, is a has withered on the vine a bit over over the years. The heyday of the OAS was probably the 1960s. I don't think it's fair to say that the OAS has not been active in, in regional conflicts historically, because it has been and often been very, very helpful. In fact, Suriname went through a brutal internal civil war uh, in the late 1970s. Uh, the current president of Suriname, uh, Desiree Delano Bautiza, uh, was at the time a sergeant and an insubordinate sergeant, along with uh, some others, and they led a, a military, violent military coup. Uh, fortunately, in Suriname, violence is, tends not to be extreme, uh, but they seized power, killed a few policemen doing so, and then embarked on a fairly disastrous path, which led to a civil war. And the OAS played an absolutely critical role in resolving that civil war. Finally, Bowders did uh, agree to step down uh, peacefully and allow democracy to be restored. 
And uh, the OAS came in and actually oversaw the disarmament process. And there was a fascinating book that they produced, which uh, was a very good reference point for me. And I was able to also talk to some of the Surinamese who had worked with the OAS mission. The OAS also has been involved in recent uh, conflicts in Honduras, for instance, and other places. But Venezuela has been a real flashpoint for the OAS. And unfortunately, as I said, the OAS is supposed to be about um, democratic countries supporting democracy. The problem is sometimes democratic countries cease being democratic, uh, and then what do you do? Uh, And the organization has a real hard time with that. At some points in the past, uh, the political stars would line up and maybe you would expel a country. Uh, but that doesn't happen a lot. And as Venezuela slowly slid into um, tyranny, which is the situation now, um, they continue to exert a very strong influence at the OAS for various reasons. Number one, uh, there were similarly aligned countries in uh, Central America and South America who, who, like Venezuela, essentially want to exclude the U.S. from having anything to do with their regions. And so they were constantly trying to minimize the, the impact of the OAS and trying to push the OAS out of things. And secondly, you have uh, Venezuela under Chavez was essentially bribing a lot of countries, particularly in the Caribbean, with oil and controlling their votes. Uh, it, was, it was well understood that before any critical vote or any critical debate that the missions from these Caribbean countries would be given very strong strong and direct orders about what they were supposed to do. And by and large, that's what they did. So that caused a huge cleavage in the OAS. And you have a current Secretary General Almagro, who's been extremely strong about criticizing Venezuela. And while I happen to agree with uh, much of what he says about the descent into totalitarianism in, in Venezuela, the fact of the matter is that that marginalized the OAS because, of course, it wasn't able to serve. The secretary general was not able to serve as an impartial um, negotiator of, of peace or, or other agreements. And it seems to me that's why you have the uh, the growth or the establishment of these groups like the Lima Group, right, where sort of collections of countries uh, that are part of their OAS members, but they, they step outside of the OAS and they perform this mediating role because it seems the OAS can't quite a lot of times play that role um, that you would expect that a regional organization could. Yes, and because clearly there were a number of countries that were lining up with Venezuela, so those countries that disagreed and that wanted to see a change in Venezuela had to find other mechanisms, to some degree within the OAS as well. And of course, the other main thing, though, is that you've just had uh, some major changes in, uh, in governments in especially South America in the last several years. Uh, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Ecuador, these were countries that were quite supportive of Chavez uh, and supporters of UNASUR, for instance, uh, and now times have changed. It strikes me the other the other problem with the OAS and that uh, it, it doesn't really, it, if you compare to the UN, for instance, it doesn't have enforcement mechanisms in, in for instance, the ability to levy sanctions or to deploy military force by its members' countries. And I think the reason for that is everyone would fear that the United States, probably correctly, would dominate yes. any sort of peacekeeping role or sanctions role. And so it's sort of been hobbled by, uh, both aided by and hobbled by the participation of the United States, because obviously the United States funds most of the OAS. 
but yet uh, it seems like the other countries, for historical reasons, are very wary of letting the United States take too much of a role in the, in the OAS. Yes. And in fact, you know, it's, it's easy to dump on the OAS, uh, and it is definitely an organization that has major problems these days. But if you look at it historically, it's been a successful organization. That consensus-driven approach has its benefits as well. And, and notably, our hemisphere has been the most peaceful hemisphere. And we haven't had major uh, conflicts between nations, armed conflicts between nations, the way pretty much everywhere else in the world has experienced. So, you know, you got to give some credit where credit is due as well, despite the problems that we have in our Well, and you've had a sort of niche areas in which the OS, I think, has been effective. Uh, I mean, in the human rights, creating a sort of inter-American human rights system. Yes. Demining, for instance, uh, in various places in Central America and I think in Colombia as well. Then the Inter-American Democratic Charter, which sort of set standards for the region yes. in terms of Yes, all those democracy. things. And, and that's why it, it was really very difficult for me personally to work there because the organization, like I say, it's it's withering. It's dying on the vine. Um, the real budget of the OAS is down by more than a third in the past, say, 12 years. The the professional staff there have been um, have been reduced in number, and certainly the morale is very very poor. The organization started to do all sorts of, in my view, incorrect things uh, to improvise ways to keep going. Uh, hiring a lot of people under contracts, people that really are employees or should be treated as employees but aren't, who don't get the benefits. And this is a tremendous negative irony because it's an organization, one of whose pillars is human rights. And so you have people who are working side by side, some of whom who get benefits and some who don't. Um, and these are the sorts of things that tend to get completely overlooked because, you you know, uh, for like these, you want to talk about grand strategy, you want to talk about, you know, trends in history and et cetera, and that's all very interesting. But at the end of the day, it comes down to how are you actually administering? Where's the money? Who do you have working for you? What's your capacity to do things? Uh, and at the OAS, all of that has been eroded. Just to give you a few examples, you mentioned human rights, the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights, the Inter-American Court, Human Rights Court, which is in uh, Costa Rica. Um, it's it's the only institution in our hemisphere, and our countries have really shamefully not supported this institution. When you look on a per capita basis at the funding for our hemisphere compared to what you would have in Europe or even in Africa, it's pathetic. It's pennies on the dollar. So you're talking about maybe, I don't know, I, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but 10, let's, let's say $15 million to support both of these organizations. And they have huge backlogs of cases, people petitioning. And basically, there, there can't be any justice if you, if you say justice de uh, delayed is justice denied. That's what's going on in our hemisphere. The entire OAS budget, the, the main budget of the OAS, is only $85 million. Well, that's nothing. And you're, you're not going to have credible programs in democracy promotion or in human rights or certainly not um, development, which is one of the other... OAS pillars with that kind of a budget. And these are things that just aren't talked about. People want to talk about the big issues. Oh, you know, the OAS is talking about Venezuela, and clearly that's a critical issue. But in the meantime, the, the core of the institution has been eroded. And, you know, absent some strong leadership on the part of some of the member states, it's not coming back. And that, that's a real pity. 
Uh, I remember when I was a delegate there, going to the OAS was a little bit like going to a time machine, right? Because uh, I was struck by the fact that, one, it's a beautiful building inside in Washington. Uh, number one, you could always get coffee at any time of the day, and it was always very good. But also, everyone smoked like a chimney. <laughs> uh, I, I think they had a carve-out, right? Uh, it's probably ended since since then, I'm yes, guessing. <laughs> but you used to be able to smoke all over the building. You felt like you are back in you know the 60s or something like that. Um, but you could tell even then that the OAS was not updating, was not modernizing right. in a, a number of different respects, and that ultimately things like that are a drag on, on an organization. Yeah, and there, you know, you if you look around Washington, um, those of us who have been here a while, you're aware that there were institutions that were at one point highly respected that through mismanagement and neglect just disappeared. The Corcoran, for instance. Uh, right next door, right. Right, very close by, a similar building. You know, it's uh, a, a beautiful uh, marble-clad building, which is now part of the uh, George Washington University, which continues to expand and take over all of Foggy Bottom. But this was an organization that was in trouble for many years, and they never would actually address the root cause problems, and finally they just ceased to exist. And I hope that doesn't happen to the OAS. But as we were talking, the OAS has a very low-profile building, uh, which is just to the side of the main building, and it's on Constitution Avenue. It's called the Administrative Building, and it was opened in the 1940s, and it is um, sitting on land that's owned by the U.S. government, but the building belongs to the OAS, and it's overlooked. You don't really notice as you're driving along, but next time, if you happen to be in Washington, drive by and, and have a look at the building. It's quite a nice building. But it is an almost original condition from 1948. It has the same original windows. It has the original elevator, which was not a solid-state elevator. It's like little piano keys. And by the way, this is exactly the type of elevator we had in Cuba <laughs> when I was managing the elevator of our, of our building in Cuba. And so it just shows you the lack of investment in the infrastructure of the OAS. You can't just keep ignoring these things for decades and expect an institution to to continue. On, on that happy note, uh, or unhappy note as it may be, uh, we, we've run out of time, but uh, Jay, thanks very much. It's been fascinating. Toured the horizon through your career and through the hemisphere. Look forward to, to maybe having you back on the show again. All right. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode. Also, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and visit the America's Program page at CSIS.org.